0: in a revolution. But it is a revolution in which the side that fires the first shot loses. We will not fire any shots because our weapon is uncommon, good sense.
1: Albert Lee Seed is proud to sponsor the Tractor Time podcast. Like you, Albert Lee Seed is committed to regenerative agriculture and organic farming. As a third-generation, family-owned company, Albert Lee Seed has been local and independent since 1923. They offer non-GMO and organic seed for the whole farm, from cover crops and small grains to forages, and are home to Viking brand corn and soybeans, the first seed line in the industry to offer guaranteed purity levels for non-GMO corn and soybeans. Yes, uh, they do sell seed, but they are also on a mission to help farmers replenish soil health and restore ecological diversity, and they want to help you create that healthy bottom line Uh, I'm sure you want to learn more about Albert Lee Seeds and their organic and non-GMO seed lineup. The best way to do that is to visit their website at alseed.com. That's A-L-S-E-E-D dot com and view their catalogs online uh, or just give them a call at 1-800-352-5247 to request the catalog. Thank you again to Albert Lee Seed for sponsoring this program. Good day, and welcome to Tractor Time, brought to you by Acres USA, the voice of eco-agriculture. I'm your host Ryan Slaybaugh, and I'm happy to bring you the 26th episode of our podcast. Thanks again to Albert Lee Seeds for making this episode possible. A uh, few announcements: Minnesota is the theme of today's show. Uh, Acres USA will be in Minnesota in December 2019 for our annual conference. And one of the reasons we will be there, other than the great December weather, is the amount of trailblazing agriculture that is going on in that region. Um, trust me, it's going to be amazing. Uh, you can learn more about the event at AcresUSA.com. Tickets to go on sale later on in the spring, and we're going to announce that uh, far and wide. Uh, but before that, we thought we'd get into some of the agriculture, uh, some of the practices of the region, and talk to some of the country's original grass-fed beef farmers uh, Today. We're going to have two cattlemen on the show to discuss their operations and some current topics, a few of which are creating a little bit of buzz and debate out there. Uh, Matt Meyer with Thousand Hills Cattle in Minnesota, and Will Winter, a teacher of holistic animal medicine, livestock consultant, and founder of the American Holistic Livestock Association. Uh, met Will at our annual conference a couple of years ago. Uh, you can recognize his trademark cowboy hat and beard. Uh, he's written for our magazine for years, spoken to our audiences before, uh, and we're excited to have him on the show today. I met Matt's team at our conference last year and learned that they had pursued Savory Institute Hub Certification and are and have been leading the way with regenerative agriculture practices. Uh, they are some of those original grass-fed farmers. Uh, their cattle are grazed 365 days a year in Minnesota, which is not an easy thing to accomplish. It takes a disciplined system, but it is possible. Uh, Will and Matt uh, work together at Thousand Hills, during a talk, they t- walked me through their uh, amazing polar vortex survival experience, uh, where temperatures reached 30 below zero on the farm, and they gave some really honest reactions to the Green New Deal, as well as sharing some ideas and inspiration for those new cattle farmers out there wondering how the heck uh, you go from 2 head to 500 head. They have some good advice. So here is Will Winter and Matt Meyer with Thousand Hills Beef Cattle in Clearwater, Minnesota. Will, Matt, welcome to Tractor Time. Thank you for taking the time, and uh, I know we're all gonna learn a lot from you guys in the next hour. Uh, Thank you guys for being here.
0: Thanks, Ryan. Uh, No place I'd rather be.
1: (laughs) Thank you for saying that. Uh, Matt, I'll I'll start with your introduction first. Uh, Can you tell us uh, where you are calling in from today? Yeah,
2: Matt Meyer, owner of Thousand Hills. We're calling in from Clearwater, Minnesota just digging out from about 15 inches of snow.
1: (laughs) We're we're gonna talk about that snow, I think, in a little bit uh, and see how you guys manage all that. Um, And could you describe your operation for us, just a little elevator speech about what you guys do?
2: Yeah, sure, we're exclusively focused on lifetime grazed, 100% grass-fed beef. Uh, We started in this business back in 2003 And that was before most people knew what grass-fed beef was. Um, It sounds intuitively obvious, but there was very little grass-fed beef actually marketed at that time. So, over 15 years ago. And um, we've been based in Minnesota and source our cattle from small family farms throughout the Midwest. Uh, Really started in the upper Midwest, but now we... Uh, distribute products across the country and source from three different regions now in the Northeast family farms uh, processed in Vermont and then cattle from family farms in the Midwest processed in Minnesota and then the West Coast uh, processed in Fresno, California. So we try to market the entire animal the whole carcass and what we're really really serious about is Regenerative agriculture and building back our soil and our land and our eco diversity, um, with grass-fed beef just being a byproduct of that. Right,
1: right. That's uh, and we're going to get into some of those tactics and strategies uh, in this hour that you guys employ on the farm to get that to happen. Uh, So, uh, thanks again for being with us. I'm I'm excited about that part. Uh, Let me introduce Will Winter. Uh, will, thank you for joining us. Um, I, I believe, and we talked before this, uh, that you are at the Moses Conference right now, locked in a room, uh, trying to find a quiet space in a big <laughs> conference center. So, uh, uh, anyway. Yeah,
0: it's, uh, trying to find a quiet place in a room with uh, 4,000 people in a convention center. That was quite a challenge, but I was really glad nobody was using the restroom right now. <laughs> we,
1: we will get that image out of our, our listeners' heads, at least uh, in a little bit here. Um, the... Uh, uh, well, tell us a little bit more about what you're doing right now. I know you're doing lots of teaching and, and talking about.
0: Yeah, I feel like uh, this sounds odd and almost conceited to say, but I feel like I'm kind of at the top of my game. I was in the class of 1972 at Kansas State University, uh, graduated as a veterinarian then, and I prior to that I'd, I'd, I was a glutton for punishment. I, I had a, a bachelor's degree in livestock nutrition and reproductive physiology, and I even stayed further and did uh, uh, my wife called it graduate school, but it was uh, <laughs> it's supposed to be graduate school. But that was in toxicology, so uh, I just they just couldn't get rid of me uh, in, in Manhattan, Kansas. But uh, so then I got out into practice, and uh, you know that's when the real learning begins. And uh, found myself working in Missouri. My first job as a baby vet, and I went to Alaska and worked in Alaska on the polar bears and, and the the sled dogs and uh that was uh not quite as fulfilling as i thought it would be uh so and i i just picked minnesota out of a map i just wanted to be uh at the time frankly i didn't i, I wanted to be not in alaska because the pipeline business was going on and i landed in minnesota with no knowledge whatsoever other than i thought it looked like uh the, the pabst beer commercial you know it was like all woods and trees and i was actually shocked to find corn and beans in minnesota uh, and uh, I've been happy in Minnesota ever since. Now I'm in Wisconsin, our bitter enemy on the football field. But uh, I'm I'm very happy to be on the Mississippi River that divides uh, Wisconsin and and Minnesota. And uh, yeah, in this meeting, it's like acres. It's like for me. I don't mean to sound irreverent, but it's like church for me mm-hmm. to get to go to these meetings and these uh, uh, these world renowned. People are walking around. You can just walk up and say hi to them, and yeah, uh, it, it's it's a powerful experience just to be here. I'm I'm feel like I'm high right now just just the presence of this place, and I, I feel sorry for farmers that can't do this, you know, mm-hmm. that can't get out, and and a particularly a lot of us work with plain people with some of the Amish and Mennonites and Hutterites, mm-hmm. and they can't have a computer, which I think maybe is. Maybe the most important tool on the farm. Joel Saladin used to say when he went to a farm, the first thing he would try to do is look at their library. And he learned a lot about what kind of books they had, which is still very true. But now to have a computer and to get like these podcasts, it's. Mm-hmm. It, it, I, I like to say my job is to help you not have to experience everything yourself. They always say experience is the best teacher. I say preferably somebody else's. And that's been my work with Thousand Hills to get people going on 100% grass-fed beef production. You, you're talking A-level, a student. It's very, very difficult. Uh, but there are tricks that you can do that we've learned over the years. I started working with Thousand Hills in 2003, actually slightly before. And uh, they're, they're my family. Uh, Thousand Hills is my family. And like Matt said, in 2003, when we were in the grocery store with beef for 4 99 a pound, and right beside it was identical looking meat for $1.99, people would say, well, why would I want to pay $4.99 for beef when I can get it for $2? And well, you know, the short answer we'd say was, here, taste some, and then you'll know. You know, but now it's it's all about people's, people's choices. We could, uh, conventional farming products could be almost uh, obsolete if people chose to buy uh, food for their family and for themselves that was sustainable regenerative wholesome and nutritious i mean it's it's, it's unbelievable the difference between the kind of food that matt makes and others um would say uh save the planet and enjoy doing it
1: <laughs> right right yeah because
0: you gotta have joy in your food if you don't have joy if you're you know in a health food store and you show all these grim looking scrawny people and it's there <laughs> gluten in that you know, they're even though they're eating right, they just it's the attitude is odd. And here it's happy people and young people that are staying on the farm instead of the mass exodus like you, Ryan and me. Right. Uh, we did. We we had the opportunity to be farmers. Like, are you kidding me? Why would I wanna look like <laughs> my dad? You know, mm-hmm. all beat down and everything. And it's like now it's like these kids are able to not be a John Deere jockey to run around in circles on a John Deere they're actually uh, these beautiful pastures beautiful right. cattle uh, vegetables whatever they're growing it's, it's exciting I, I couldn't be happier
1: well, that's uh, uh, I, I can hear the excitement in your voice I, I, I it fires me up too and I just hit on a couple points you just said uh, uh, yes I love that Moses event uh, it's so much fun to uh, I need those events every six months or a year just to get fired up and to get uh, get refocused on what we we really need to be doing. Uh, and the other thing, yeah, is I, the
0: the people, the other people drain your energy. You know, when you get out in the world, you're talking to. I call them yow butters. Whatever you say, they go, yeah, but you know that's not the way my neighbors do it. Yeah, but you know that works in Texas, but it doesn't work here. You know, and you know those kind of people take a lot of energy to to that we get recharged when we come to these things. We come out of here like. Knights in shining armor, you right. know, uh, trying to fight a good fight.
1: That's exactly it, uh, uh, Matt. I wanted to ask you a question: Where a thousand the name Thousand Hills came from? And I, I'd heard you uh, speak to this before. That you said it was named after a psalm. Actually, um, did you talk a little bit about that? And just you know, what what is where did the Thousand Hills name came from?
2: Yeah, it's uh, from the Bible, Psalm fifty ten, um, where. Uh, God is reminding David that, uh, he is the master of everything, including the cattle grazing on a thousand hills. Um, so it, it that's, uh, the, the, where it's rooted and to extend upon that in the farm that I grew up on by in Clearwater, Minnesota is really varied terrain with a lot of water and a lot of hills and, um. My dad, growing up on the farm that he bought in 1959, that I grew up on, his his relatives always teased him about, they were out on the plains, and why in the world was he trying to farm these hills uh, that just didn't seem like they were conducive to anything. And yet, uh, and when I, I too left the farm, went to college, and decided that is a crazy living even though I loved being on the farm and the work and everything, I was like, there's there's not a way to earn a living here, and it's just a, it's a crazy life. Only 20 years later to look at it and go, oh, my gosh, look at all the things that he was doing right. right. He wasn't tilling the hills. We had grasslands. We were raising cattle on grass. We had pigs in pastures. We had chickens roaming free. I thought, oh, wow, here all the stuff that was so different from everybody else that he was doing basically as survival because we didn't have a lot of money so he didn't have the machinery and he didn't have the inputs uh, you know that were right. c- coming on the scene in a big way with petrochemical fertilizers and pesticides uh, and he was just figuring his way through natural means with what he was given on this land and now I'm so grateful because I learned a lot from that whole experience and I was able to move my family back uh, near the farm where I grew up and get to manage all these hills that are just a real treasure.
1: Uh, very cool. Thank you for that story. I, I appreciate that. Um, uh, well, let's, let's get into it a little bit here. Um, I, I wanted to start with uh, the polar vortex. I know uh, a lot of us heard about it and a lot of us experienced it. Uh, where that Arctic air decided to hang out in the Midwest for a week and uh, keep temperatures well below zero. Uh, I read that in near, close to where you guys are, that it reached about 41 below at one point, if not, uh, and I'm sure you guys have some stories, but uh, you, I've heard both of you guys talk a lot about uh, raising resilience in soil, raising resilience in the livestock and in your land, but this had to test you guys a little bit, right? I mean, this was this was a heck of a story.
2: Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it gets pretty dangerous when you, I think the, the record temperature that I had during that time on my home farm thermometer was 30 below zero temperature wow. and 85 below uh, wind chill. Okay. And so, yeah, you have to plan and make preparations, uh, the, you know, and unfortunately where we live, there's ravines, there's tree stands, there's forests. Uh, We have lean-to buildings that they can go to as well, the cattle can go to. And the biggest biggest thing is just being out of the wind. You know, they're like people in that way, that, that standing in the wind is not a good thing. So when it gets that cold, you have to be especially careful that they have some bedding and dry place to lay down and that they can spend the night specifically out of the wind or as much time out of the wind as possible. And they eat more, so you have to make sure you're on top of Um, increasing their uh, daily ration of forage. Um, But otherwise, you know, um, cattle are amazing and how they get up in the morning, and if it's 25 below, they look around. (laughs) If they're not in the wind, they're like, all right, my job is to get some water and to eat, and they figure that out, and uh, they keep on going. So it it always surprises me because I have my own anxiety when I get up in the morning, I'm like, okay, I'm going to go for my walk and go check just to see, you know, that they're all still breathing. And they look at me like, eh, yeah, not much going on here, you know. Yeah, <laughs> so know uh, so there's it, not a lot different, but you do have to be careful that you do take those steps of getting them out of the wind and taking care of them. That makes
1: sense. It's
0: funny how, uh, how much you can learn by looking at wild animals, like what, what did the bison do when the wind is blowing? And, you know, they grew up in the prairie with very few trees, so they know which way to point their butt, you know, mm-hmm. and they herd they mm-hmm. together to get out of it. Uh, but with global weirding, I, I probably get more calls nowadays from weather extremes from uh, farmers and ranchers uh, of how to deal with it. Now, Matt is in the camp of taking care of his cows. He believes in shelter belts and, and shade in the summer. Uh, and it's really odd in my my clientele, I'm a livestock consultant, there's a huge contingent of grass-fed beef producers who they'll say things like, we don't pamper our cows, you know, like pampering is a bad thing. <laughs> or, you know, our cows are tough and if they can't stand it, we didn't want them anyway. You know, I mean, it's like a kind of a macho attitude, even in our sweet world. But uh, the the people, I really have a lot of respect for people who uh, are considerate. Oddly, cattle are actually more affected by uh, hot temperatures, uh, which of course we have that too, but you go to Texas, Oklahoma, Mississippi, Louisiana, Arkansas, Alabama, in those areas, Florida, uh, they're not built for heat. And a uh, uh, bovine is actually most comfortable at 42 degrees hmm. because they have what you might call a wood stove in their belly, a 50 gallon tank where they burn wood. We can't digest wood, but the rumen can digest wood, and it turns into a lot of heat. So right in the middle of of the bovine is this major heat stove that they get too hot, and they go off production. You know, there's a lot more problems with heat. And then the other time, you know, sure, we we don't like to see them out in the cold because we would be cold, even Mm -hmm. though they have a different metabolism. One of the biggest problems wherever you travel is what they call mud time. And uh, it, it it pains me to see animals standing in mud. And uh, sometimes we get grief from people that are confinement livestock people. They go, "Oh, our cows live in barns where you know it's air conditioned and they have fans." And well, no, that I just don't buy that. They they think we're cruel. And then I drive by; I can barely drive by a feedlot just seeing cattle uh, up to their bellies in mud. I won't go into the, you know how gruesome it strikes me but our cattle look so happy. And they're living as close to nature as, as possible. And it, it, it's just an amazing, beautiful world. And sometimes I'll take a picture of a herd of cattle, I'll, I'll send it to my friends and go, oh, this is my office, this is where I work. And uh, you know, it's this gorgeous, huge
2: beautiful well, it landscape. It's it's so true, when you're with cattle and they're in the environment that they're supposed to be in, you sense that. Mm you Mm -hmm. sense that they are satisfied they're happy and it just turns into beauty i've got yeah uh, we basically live on the just outside the suburbs of an urban area so we have a lot of neighbors that watch our cattle in their through their houses as we rotate them around through the paddocks and they i They stop me on the road and tell me how much they love seeing the cattle on the land, how much they love to drive by and see that they're okay, how healthy they look. I mean, it's so gratifying just to have our little community that can remember the time when there were cattle out grazing and they all weren't in a feedlot somewhere. And they, they, they know that that's the right thing just intuitively uh so you know you you get that feedback both from people and from the cattle on on their performance and just how they look and behave and how their coat looks uh they're just in you know they're in the right environment i believe you can taste that in the meat too and you know ryan one of the funniest things Mm -hmm. we all in the beginning had to demonstrate
0: meat in supermarkets and co ops and grocery stores uh and we would People would walk by and go, hey, would you like to try some 100% grass-fed beef? And you get funny comments like, well, what else would a cow eat, you know? Uh, let me tell you. Uh, <laughs> but the other thing is like, almost invariably, anybody over about 50 or 55, they put it in their mouth and they just say, oh my gosh, I remember when beef used to taste like this. And you know, now beef tastes like soy corn to me. And it's it, so on both ends, they're, they're, they're looking at the beauty in the field, and when they put it in their mouth, there's this other experience that happens with 100% grass-fed beef, grass-fed beef or pastured pork or free-range chickens or eggs. There's a taste that I think reflects the lack of cruelty in the production, same with milk, mm-hmm. uh, and then uh, the, these flavors, smells and flavors will take you right back to kindergarten or you know your childhood. And that flavor of that grass-fed beef, when it's done right, there's a lot of, we, you know, should mention, there's a lot of bad, bad grass-fed beef. And uh, when I was demonstrating it, I was amazed how many people, oh, no, I tried grass-fed beef, mm-hmm. I couldn't stand it. It was tough and gamey and dry. I go, well, yeah, yeah, you're right, but not ours. And, you know, because this is this A student stuff I was talking about, when Matt was talking about his place, one of the things that every person that raises Something like Grand beef has. They have to learn how to rotate the pastures, which is mimicking Mother Nature, just like the buffalo herds. They they, they stay together. You know why, Ryan? That were the why the buffalo stay close together.
1: I assume warmth and companionship. No, is there a different reason? No, no yeah. predators. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah.
0: You didn't want your baby to get eaten by a wolf or bears or you know. So they stay together. Well, we've kind of eliminated most of the cattle predators. So they don't have that in their memory as much anymore. So they're just like, I guess I'll go over here. Uh, So they don't naturally stay together. So we compress them into a herd just like buffalo by, let's say you have, doesn't matter if you have one acre or or 10,000, you don't let them just wander around and eat a weed here and a piece of grass there because that will basically destroy the pasture. Uh, What we do is we'll condense them. And we've even had, Heroes in our field uh, that have grazed a million pounds of cattle per acre. Wow. So you can imagine that's that's mimicking uh, bison herd. So a million pounds per acre. Well, how long would they stay in that acre? Right. Well, not very long. And those that's why this is uh, not as easy as just throwing your cattle out there and coming back a year or two later. Uh, they may that that million is an that's an extreme. That's sure. kind of an outlier number, but uh, it can be done, And but they never go back on that piece of ground, maybe for a whole year, mm-hmm. which is exactly what the bison did. They migrated thousands of miles, following the richness, the nutrient density, and getting mineral licks, salt licks, by the way, uh, and so we're, we're mimicking all that, and that's what Matt's doing, so when people drive by his place, it's like, Kelly, you know, it hasn't rained for a month, how come your place is still green, ha-ha-ha? <laughs> mm-hmm. That's because we're sequestering carbon, we're building organic matter, and when it rains, it's not like when you go to Iowa, where you look at the water coming off mm-hmm. the cornfields and it looks like Starbucks mocha. Right. Uh, when it rains on Math Place, <laughs> there's not a drop that runs off. The soil is like, and it's it stays there. So you could go a month and it's still green. You fly over a place like Gabe Brown out in Bismarck, North Dakota, mm-hmm. and here's this green patch in a sea of brown and that's that again this is a regenerative part that we're talking about a sustainable part uh and when cattle just go out and eat whatever they want what are they going to eat they're going to eat the ice cream they're going to get the stuff that tastes good and they just keep going back and back and back and back to those good tasting plants ignoring what we call weeds uh so pretty soon then you're faced with a dilemma how am i going to get rid of my weeds well, you know, you're going to burn them off or you're going to spray poison. Uh, we don't ever do either of those things. We don't have to burn and we don't have to spray poison because we have what's kind of like non-selective eating. When they're just all munching together. They eat the, the, what we call weeds. They're eating the, the forbs. They're eating the, the little shrubs. They're eating everything because it all tastes good. And then, oh, boy, we get to go to a new one. And then uh, we, we drop a, a electric fence. And they're on new grass, and so they're constantly getting the highest quality grass, which is the, the tips, the growing parts. That's where the nutrient density, the vitamins, the minerals, the calories, all the good stuff. But we don't let them take a second bite. And that's such a critical part, and it's so hard for people to understand it. And you know what? Farmers will say, well, you're wasting that grass. Why are you leaving? Look at that. You left it. You left look at all that you left, left.
1: Yeah.
0: yeah yeah you, you wasted yeah. some grass and well no we didn't because that grass with only a little tip taken off is going to get stimulated grass actually likes that by the way uh so it, it, because in nature it's an ecosystem with the the top food chain uh, the herbivores they actually make the, the the land and the land makes it rain it's you know it's just sure. a beautiful beautiful makes make
1: a uh, symphony of all this stuff going on yeah, yep. yeah, I want to let Matt get in there for a minute I you know could you talk about a little bit of the tactics of this I was curious as, as will was talking um, you know when you're looking at the grasses that you're you have in your pastures are you introducing new grass seed in there every year, or is, are those mostly all are those all native grasses, you know, how, how do you make sure you're growing the right grasses for your... for your This is a
0: trick question, Ryan. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the reason I say that is that this seed bank, nobody knew this, that, uh, certainly when I was a kid, but when we get the shade canopy off of some of this brushy land, what yeah. Matt's doing now with some wild hogs, not wild hogs, but uh, outdoor hogs, mm-hmm. is getting the shade canopy off. I do it with sheep and goats myself. But uh, all of a sudden, these warm-season and cool-season grasses start springing up that you didn't even plant. Interesting. And, uh, you know, a native prairie will have several hundred species growing in harmony. On dry years, certain ones flourish. On wet years, other ones flourish. You know, uh, it's, again, it's it's a God-created design that has so much beauty and resilience in it that monocropping... They always say nature hates a monocrop. You see a field of alfalfa or corn. It's one stupid plant, usually an annual. That's why I say stupid plant. Because Americans eat annuals. And the annuals are little tiny roots. There's very little nutrient density. Uh, they, they take a lot of work and a lot of tillage and have to be irrigated because they're little pansies. Uh, whereas these perennial shrubs are loaded with uh, polyphenolic phytonutrients that uh, that are actually plant medicine. So when they eat what again, I always say what we call weeds because the weed is just a plant you yeah, haven't figured out what it's good for yet. Right. Uh, we actually yeah. like all this diversity. And yeah, certainly we do plant uh seed cocktails out there many times to reintroduce them if they've been totally
2: stripped of life and they're banned, well, yeah, and, you know, that's where I yeah, that's where I was gonna go is it depends on our situation. So when we're taking over land that we're gonna graze, we do an assessment of how the land was used in the past. And I'd say about a third of what we begin grazing is what would be considered traditional or native pasture. And all we need to do there is is introduce cattle and rest. and Cattle managed in the right way and rest. And we'll get all the variety of uh, grasses and forbs and legumes that we need. And it's so amazing to watch the people that own that land, because most of our land is leased from our neighbors, and they'll see this pasture that basically had been eaten down to the ground for the last 70, 80 years, and we'll come in and and graze the cattle at a higher density, pull them off, let it rest. And within a year, that land begins to come back to life, and plants begin to survive that need to grow beyond an inch to be actually flourish like they've been grazed down to an inch and so all those, all those seeds are in the seed bed and it just starts to flourish uh, and turn into a completely different pasture but in where Will was going in the areas where they've been tilled and we're now going to introduce it to grazing that land into grazing generally the tilling has been going on for about a hundred years on this land there sometimes, you know, before a lot of petrochemicals, there were, was manure and other inputs added on that could have been good for the soil, but in a lot of a lot of this area, it's now been rented land to large farmers running corn and soybeans, where they're just really sticking some nitrogen in the land to get the plant to grow up and turn green, and then weed control on top of that, and that soil. Uh, again, is eroded, wind and, and rain, uh, there isn't much topsoil, and we need to take a cocktail of, of grasses and forbs and legumes and reintroduce all of that into try to create a grassland again. And that is not easily done on that soil. Yes. It takes that inden- first year can look like a moonscape because mm-hmm. of all the
0: pesticide that's in it—the weed killer.
2: Right. It won't even yeah. grow a weed,
0: mm-hmm. and uh, it's yeah, it's, it's stark and scary. Uh, we do have yep. biological substances uh, that some of the advertisers in Acres Magazine have that actually eat glyphosate and Roundup, and they destroy it. And I use those every time when we're starting. Corn and bean ground. I did a talk one time down in Ankeny, Iowa, to organic producers, and most of them were uh, seed producers. Uh, after my whole talk this is like hours about why you should start doing grass fed beef for a living, and you know, I told them numbers of what people can make for dollars per acre with with uh, either cow calf or finished beef. And this one guy was he was an uh, organic corn producer. He said, "Well, well, I, I I just got one question." Um, why would I want to take my land out of production? (laughs) I'm sorry, this was struck me so funny. And I I had all these funny answers, like uh, to make money, maybe. Uh, And this was before this $3 corn time, even. Uh, But he wasn't making fresh money, because he needed all this iron to drag his implements around, and he he needed all these sprays, all these inputs, all the uh, artificial nitrogen, the NPK stuff, uh, buying uh, expensive seeds. We do not do any of that. A lot of Mass producers—they might have a pickup and an ATV. That's all the iron they have on their property and all the iron they need. So yeah, it's just mm-hmm. funny when you go down in Iowa, uh, Nebraska, that when they say corn ground, they don't say corn ground; they say corn ground. Oh, that's corn ground. Well, you know, to them, grass is like a failure. Right. Like, oh, I, it must not be good land because it's just got grass on it. Uh, you know so the, there's a lot of paradigms that we have to change, and the the most important critical piece of a farmer to survive anywhere but in America today you 've got to be open minded and you 've got to be able to think out of the box and we 're asking these guys to do something grandpa didn't probably didn't do mm-hmm. dad certainly didn't but, and their neighbors aren't doing it, and even the most famous uh organic natural farmers in the United States, their neighbors think they're lunatics. Just look at look at that idiot. And yeah, of course he's got green because well, it just rains more in his place, or he got all the good ground. You know, so there's always some excuse why this can't work.
2: <laughs> That's easy. yeah. And the not so the not so funny part about this is you know the study that has been done that says the world's topsoil could be gone within sixty years, uh, so sixty harvests from now, and. Living where I live and working with the producers and converting the land that we've converted, I see it happening. I see land actually going, quote, out of production because they are unable to get a crop, a traditional, conventional crop out of that land. And then I get that phone call and say, well, geez, I can't rent it to this guy. Will you can I rent it to you? And, you know, the answer is Yes. And we'll go in and rebuild it, but it's going to take some time and it's going to take some expense to make that happen. Um, But yet that is the most urgent mission that we're on as a company is to rebuild those soils, because if we don't have the soils, we don't have the food. And Mm -hmm. so this argument that you have to have GMO plants to feed the world is actually the reverse is true. We, That's the, monoculture, yeah, the monoculture crops are not going to feed the world. We're not going to feed the world with GMO corn crops. And if we do for a while, like we are, we're going to end up degrading our soils to a point that the nutrition in that corn will still starve us when we eat it. So I, I see it happening. I couldn't believe in something more on on the food system side than the fact that there needs to be a wholesale change in how we treat our soils, and and introducing ruminants is a big part of the formula to rebuilding our soils. It, it isn't gonna just happen on its own. We have to manage our way back to rebuild those soils. The good news is, we can do it quicker than we ever thought possible. Um, you know, the what's the standard uh conventional wisdom was something like uh, an inch every hundreds of years we could build Mm -hmm. and actually Mm -hmm. we can do that in maybe five to seven years when we are managing the cattle correctly and managing the land correctly we can the the good news is we can build soil and and nutrient dense soil biologically active soil very quickly but we got to get the cattle out of the feedlots and onto yeah. the land to do it, yeah. and, and we get lumped in with the feedlots yeah. and the conventional dairies. Uh, old cows, yeah, the cattle the do. Yeah.
0: yeah, cow oh, do. bars are destroying the planet. But we don't like to be lumped in with a bad industry. We're not the bad guys, right. and we got ammo. Like those guys, they might ask us a rhetorical question, like, "How are you going to feed the world, nine billion people?" Now, hold on, we got an answer. Yeah. You know, we really do have an answer, right. and we we point out to them that. Uh, in the 14, 1500s, there was more food being produced on North America than there is today. Yep. Free, free food. Yep. You know, passenger pigeons by the trillions. They're like big flying chickens, yep. and we had, uh, you know, maybe 100 million bison just wandering around, just go get one. So we had, we had all this food, and we've we've destroyed that and replaced it with fake food, we didn't even mention water yet. I grew up in Kansas, a, a wheat farm family, and wheat is a dry land crop, but you go to Kansas now and everybody's got pivots, they've got irrigation pivots, mm-hmm. and they're sucking the oil, Ogallala aquifer dry, and you go into the, the cafe in the morning, and the guy's sitting around talking about how many feet did you add to your well this year, and that they're going down another 250 feet to get water. Well, guess what? That That's a, a not an infinite supply of water. So they're artificially raising all these grow, uh, these row crops, and we actually make it rain. I mean, that sounds funny to say, but grass and and green plants, the rainforest. That key word is forest. We can actually make more rain than a forest with with grass. Wow! It's, it's God's gift
1: to America. Let's, let's talk about this a little bit because it's important. Um, uh, recently, the the group of representatives, you know, put a big bill out there called the Green New Deal. They got a lot of buzz, and I I know their goal was to shock the system a little bit, and they certainly worked. Uh, And the discussion, though, is finally starting to happen after the first initial reaction. Now we're finally starting to get a little bit into the, what does this mean? Uh, We know that there's parts in there, you know, it's hard, you know, uh, as as a person who really wants to uh, support environmentalism, uh, you know, I love the idea of something that would shock the system a little bit and change our, our mode of conversation. I do get concerned, though, when you start to see some of the tactics in there that, that are taking animals off the land as a way to to, re, yeah. to support the land. And, and we know, based on what Will was just talking about and what you're doing, Matt, every day on your farm, that uh, that makes the challenge a lot more difficult to regenerate the land when you pull animals off that. So I wanted to get your guys' take on this. Well, and- exactly.
0: I think AOC
1: was a little bit misquoted on that,
0: uh, and, and certainly uh, under educated on what we are doing uh but yeah I, and i think americans need shock we don't do anything as a country until we're in shock and desperate and done you know with climate change and all that it's like deny 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 oh my god and then we're really good at fixing things but uh you know it almost takes a shock to the system people are pretty complacent with the fact that you know we're sicker than ever and our children are you know not going to live as long as we did and, you know there's all this gloom and doom stuff. Uh, so I, I I I put the book "Defending Beef" in so many people's hands. I just mm-hmm. I should just buy them wholesale or something because Nicolette Nyman, mm-hmm. yep. uh, who is a grassroots beef uh, advocate, she she can uh, arm wrestle anybody uh, onto the table in her gentle, sweet way by showing people facts, and and people are <laughs> they're allergic to facts these days too, <laughs> and uh, you know, but the facts are on our side, and that's why. Matt and I feel good every day when we wake up. We get to be a part of this paradigm shift back into uh, holistic thinking, natural thinking, um, regenerative thinking. It's pretty exciting. Uh, And and it gives us the strength to overcome the naysayers and uh, doomsayers. And I personally, I don't care if they make artificial meat. That's their prerogative. It's a free country to do that. Sure. But it's not going to work. In my opinion, that's just my opinion. But
2: God bless them. I hope, you know, that's, they, they get to do that. Yeah, the Nicola Diamond vegan turned grass-fed beef supporter. Mm. So, and, and lawyer. <laughs> right. uh, environmental yeah, right. lawyer, vegan, turned grass-fed uh-huh. beef supporter. So, you know, someone who was really out fighting for the environment has realized that one of the most positive things we can do for the environment, given carbon sequestration, and having more green growing days to have more photosynthesis and more plants capturing carbon out of the atmosphere and putting it in the soil, whether it's building topsoil and that organic matter going in there fed by carbon, watershed absorbing 20 to 25,000 gallons per percent increase in organic matter, and we're taking land that's less than 1% organic matter and getting it up to five, so we're doing five times organic matter. You do the math on on um, watershed, you know, and we're saving 100,000 gallons uh, going into the land per acre per rain event. Yeah. Um, you know, that has a huge impact. So yeah, it, but that's somehow the education needs that that, 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 that somehow that education does need to continue to happen, which is why we love talking to you, Ryan. Is yeah. that this there's there's has to be a stark line drip, drip, uh, drawn between conventional feed lot corn fed cattle and cattle that are out doing what they were intended to do on the land and all the positive impacts that it has. When I started re- researching my second career, I, I worked in after I left the farm. I went to college. I always worked in food. I worked in conventional food for 20 years. And decided I had a, I had an opportunity to take a break and wanted to research what I could do to actually improve the food system. Mm-hmm. Having had cancer myself and cancer in our family and watching what actually was going on in conventional food through my own livelihood and my upbringing and in my career, uh, my research kept pointing me back to grass-fed beef, <laughs> that that is the single biggest impact that you can have as an individual or business owner or farmer is to be involved in grass fed beef to positively affect nutrition, environment, rural economies. It was like the biggest thing that changed that food system it went right back to one single thing grass fed beef. So mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. why I'm in it. I mean, that's, that's, it's so gratifying to work in an industry like that. So
1: how do we yeah. how do we share that message? Uh, I, I'd love some ideas, and I know that's, that's that's the hard part, right? Is how do we get the magnifying glass on you guys to really show uh, what you guys are doing, mm-hmm. and, and and folks like yourself um, out there, because um, there's a, there is enough out there to really show that this is not just a crazy idea. This is actually a working uh, system um, that we can. Uh, simulate and, and expand on and um, and I it, it to me that's where it gets really daunting is how do we jump across that ravine and make sure they're getting you know that everybody's getting that education at this point. That's, well, you know, I mean, yeah. people
2: working it's like-minded people working together. Right. Um, you know, it's 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 your organization at Acres, it's Grass-Fed Exchange mm-hmm. um, as a brand. We're working with Savory Institute. Right and all of their work in um, reversing desertification and in supporting grazing. Um, We also work with the American Grass-Fed Association, and that definition of what they have in their standards of what truly grass-fed beef is, that doesn't allow the shortcuts of feeding dried distiller grains in a feedlot and calling it grass-fed beef, which the USDA allows on the label, but rather the American Grass Fed Association and their standards that match our protocol that say the cattle have to be on the land, they're not confined, they're not fed grain byproducts, they're doing what they're supposed to be doing, what nature intended them to do. So to me, it's all—it's a consortium of all these independent organizations with a very similar message, working synergistically together to deliver this message out there. there's no one silver bullet that's going to come top down and say, hey, this is the thing that everyone should know about. It's that consistent message coming at consumers, specifically from a lot of different directions. Mm-hmm. Consumers drive the bus, that's for sure. Yeah. Vote yep. you with, with your dollars. Vote with your dollars. Vote with your
0: fork. Uh, there's a, yeah. <laughs> a guy named uh, Richard Manning who wrote the book Against the Green, which is a great, I uh-huh. wish I, I could steal that title. It's so great. But he was <laughs> talking about this grassroots beef revolution. And he was at the 2016 uh, Iowa uh, uh, polling, not polling, but where the candidates all talked. Mm-hmm. And he wrote an article for Harper's Magazine about how many minutes they talked about agriculture or climate or feeding the world, and it was zero. Yeah. it just didn't come up with all the candidates republican democrat independent uh so he, he, he said that and i that it occurred to me that really at the end of the day ryan you were sounding kind of like you know how you get frustrated and cynical uh this is a david and goliath battle obviously we're we're david but guess what goliath is obsolete and and can't function so matt and i know we're on the winning team this is the horse to bet on because we're sustainable and regenerative and and goliath is neither and goliath only exists with free grain from the government you know subsidized grain uh they can so that makes it uh they can afford to feed animals these the epa and all the other bought out uh uh organizations allow them to pollute like crazy way more than city people pollute right. and then they'll still allow antibiotics in the feed so if it wasn't for those three things there could not be a feedlot they can't exist without those crutches right so that's why we're gonna win
1: well i i i agree 100 percent i think uh, uh and what an opportunity we have now that, that that to your point it it so often we go a decade without it even being in the public uh Uh, Conversation and uh, I know we're not quite there yet, but it does feel as though uh, the volume is picking up a little bit. I'm hearing it a lot more, um, and I'm hearing it come out of uh, people's uh, from people that traditionally wouldn't be using this as a as a a political point of view or even a soundbite to to build a campaign Uh off of. So uh, mostly it's it's environmental related. Uh, Food is kind of a side effect to it, but um, yeah, I, I do have confidence. And I guess that when you guys are talking about consumers. Uh, you guys are obviously in the business of uh, selling, uh, distributing to consumers in the end. Uh, you know, as you guys are talking to grocery store chains and other buyers uh, through the years, how is the conversation changing at all? Are you hearing that conversation change?
2: Boy, Ryan, you know, um, I've been actively selling to grocery meat buyers now for, these over 10 years. And I can tell you it went from okay, that sounds good. I don't really want to see it, the label or anything. Just how much does it cost? Right. And mm-hmm. if it's no, if it's not anywhere near conventional, I'm not interested. So nice little dog and bony show you have there, but right. it's all about cost. And fast forward that to the actually the conversation has changed within the last 12 months right. where I have been able to get into more conversations where I'm given my 15 to 20 minutes to present to a buyer and I begin, I open up the can of worms literally of regenerative agriculture and it'll lead to, I'd say three out of four times, it'll lead to an hour, hour and a half discussion about some of the things that we've mentioned right here in this podcast. Uh, And they actually sit up and listen and ask questions. And the most gratifying part is at the end of that meeting, they say, wow, I'm really glad you came in today. I learned something. Mm -hmm. And if I hear that, Mm -hmm. then I know that consumers are getting feedback enough to them that when the word sustainable, regenerative, 100% grass-fed beef, somewhere in there, there's some pressure because they're actually sitting up and saying, this makes sense. This is the first presentation that I've seen like this. It makes sense to me. We have to figure out a way to work together. So I can joyfully, loudly say that the conversation is changing at the meat buyer level. And these are conventional meat buyers that are not in this because they want to change the world. It's a job. And they have a job you know, to Matt, do, which I, I totally respect.
0: I don't know <coughs> if they say it's you, Matt, but uh, these grocery chains are concerned about deadly pathogens, which in conventional meat, mm. and we've got these millions of pounds being recalled. To my knowledge, correct me if I'm wrong, there's never been a, a, a recall of 100% grass-fed beef, the real deal. Uh, and I don't think there ever will be, because deadly pathogens do not grow in the meat that we have. Not that we're not careful. We've, we've definitely... Uh, check everything we're uh, a lot of integrity there but it's a safer meat and it's much of course much easier to track because you're going to a a tiny farm rather than a a giant feedlot but that I, i think that's a big point is people are worried about getting food poisoning and we have the answer for that too maybe it's a small part of it but boy to me it's a big
1: thing right there's there's truly no nothing there's no no, ever there's never going to be a hundred percent safe food supply that's just against that's nature right. Nature's never hundred percent safe right and the, exactly right, right. Yeah. Uh, yeah it
0: could be contaminated anywhere along the way including right. in the home you know by the by the person that buys it but uh, still uh, I believe that food safety not only nutrient density which we've mm-hmm. got in spades not only fat quality we're omega-3 anti-inflammatory fat whereas conventional beef is omega6. Highly inflammatory beef. So people get inflamed joints, arteries, skin, their brain, everything's inflamed, their guts. Uh, we have the, these antidotes. That's why we're going to win. I mean, it's like it's really the team to play on right now. And all well, and we have I would, to do
2: is I, help people. Yeah. And I would yeah. take it back to that question about is the, you, you know, what was so frustrating in the early uh, experience in this category was not being able to explain the differences of the product and how it was raised, not even having that opportunity to explain it. And now we're at a point where I rarely get shut down and I actually get more questions uh, than I do have answers. They want to know more and more. So, you know, I went to a food conference here in Minneapolis, oh, geez, I don't know, six, nine months ago. And when the CEO of General Mills, is bringing up regenerative agriculture. You know, they're one of the most uh, intelligent from a consumer research standpoint organizations on the face of the planet. And Mm -hmm. so that leads me back to, if the CEO is saying something about regenerative agriculture, there's consumers are becoming aware enough that they're pushing on them to say, give us more products like this. Um, And so it's very encouraging. Very, right now, it's a, it's a very infurgeoning yeah.
0: so We're only 4% of the beef market, uh, and then 80% of that is a $100 billion industry. grass fits $4 billion. Of that, about 80% is imported from Argentina, Brazil, New Zealand, uh, Australia. Uh, and yet, we want to support American farmers. We're not saying we're the best country in the world necessarily, but... We, we we want um, the family farm in America is dying, especially a real farm with a real family, not a fake family, and that's another thing that I love about Matt. And Matt goes out of his way. If if people can only produce five head a year for Thousand Hills, Matt will drive yeah. a truck out there and and help get those cattle in so that family can make money on their beef. And maybe who knows? Maybe they'll have. 500 a year someday but right. this is how it starts we we want to help people i've got the technical know-how to make sure you can have radiantly healthy animals that make you money without any drug crutches whatsoever so we got the technology we know how to do the soil we know how to do the plants we know how to select and breed the animals that can do this so it's all here we got the package and skill for people that want to jump into this this is there's never been a better time
2: there. Well, you know, and that that brings up another point: is that lifestyle? You know, mm-hmm. I think people should, if they want to live the lifestyle of having a farm and living in rural America, I think they should have that choice. Mm-hmm. Now, that doesn't yeah. mean they shouldn't have to work for it. It doesn't mean it's not easy. It doesn't, you know, it's a big challenge, all that, but it's doable in this pastured, uh, multi-species, uh, layered uh, enterprise. So, a, a young couple, you know, could take. 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 acres and make a living out of it when they're layering on these enterprises. Whereas if you're going to grow corn, you better have 2,000 acres, Mm -hmm. you know, and you better put 200,000 into a big green machine. And, you know, Mm -hmm. pretty soon you're upside down by millions, and then you better grow a lot of corn. And what I love about this is that, you know, a young couple can go and say, okay, we're gonna have some laying hands, we're gonna have some grass-fed beef, maybe we'll have some sheep or goats, we'll grow some vegetables, maybe some fruit, you know, honey, whatever it is, and they can figure out how to make it work. And I wanna be part of the formula, if they're gonna raise grass-fed beef, Absolutely. I wanna offer a steady market, a premium price, so that they know where this product is gonna go, and they have a, they have a way of selling it, and we can come and get it, and gain the great benefit of that high-quality beef coming off of those family farms. It's, uh... Exactly. It's not boring either for
0: these young kids. They don't want to do, maybe dad's farming was boring to them, but run around in circles on that Don Deer, but uh, this is not boring, and it's not toxic. You can raise your kids in a place that's not filled with poison. Right. Uh, and so yeah. that, like I say, it's every advantage uh, for these farmers. And I like what you said about the, the downstroke, the investment is mm-hmm much much less you know they can do it on leased land a lot of right. people are doing that they've read great mm-hmm. judy's book about how you can how you can farm even though you weren't in the lucky club that inherited the land mm-hmm. and that's where most kids are they they did not inherit the farm uh, so they don't have a ton of money and they but they want to be farmers here mm-hmm. we are
1: right or even if they did inherit it they don't have the capital to do anything with it once they get once they once they inherit that's true, the farm, right? <laughs> true. Um, yeah you know?
2: You know what, Ryan? I got to get off my phone and run to the airport. So I'm sorry I have to cut short, but I've got everything scheduled pretty tight today, I realized. No problem, Matt. So Good. I, kinda if the if you were kind of cutting into my do... time, Matt.
1: Yeah, well, Matt.
2: Well, yeah, I know. Okay. <laughs> You've been so quiet, Will. Come on to your <laughs> show. Can I, can I get one question in? <laughs> I'm uh, uh, on all these great ideas. Yeah, yes, yeah, you, let's wrap. Yeah, whatever you need to do. We'll to go wrap, ahead and,
1: yep. and wrap up. I really appreciate, uh, uh, again, this is Tractor Time Podcast. We've had Matt Meyer, we've had uh, Will Winter on today. We've talked a lot, uh, we covered a lot of ground today, and then there's more ground to cover. We'll, we'll have you guys back at some point, I promise. Uh, my last question. We didn't I, talk
0: much about tractors.
1: We didn't. No, but this is uh, 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 the one thing we don't talk about. Actually, um, <laughs> the uh, uh, anyway, big ending. I just wanted to make sure uh, we we have a good, solid ending to the show. Uh, I always like to ask the guest, you know, um, to to share some motivating words. You guys have accomplished a lot. You're so successful in this. I know there's a lot of people looking up to you guys. Uh, why do you have hope for a better future? And kind of what advice would you give to that next farmer coming up? You go first, Matt. Well. I-
2: I think we've covered a lot of that. I mean, mm-hmm. right now, the if, if you're interested in regenerative ag of any type, any species, uh, you know, plants, vegetables, whatever it is, the market is growing for that. There's market demand for that in your neighborhood and nationally. So I think it's a very realistic, probably the most realistic time of the last 50 years to consider uh, this type of agriculture as a, a lifestyle, yes. um, and you know, in in the world of that I see, uh, I know it's changing down to our local co-op thriving and expanding uh, to the larger chains saying we have to be more uh, dedicated to the natural, organic, regenerative space. So in food, I don't think I know in my 30 some year career of food. I've never seen a more dynamic, exciting time to be in it. Thank you for that. Ditto. Yeah. Yeah. Amen to that. And, you know, technologically
0: you can struggle along for seven or eight years and finally get there yourself, but you don't have to do that anymore. Uh, we can cut clip years off of your learning curve by learning from uh group experiences of just do this, this works. But it takes attitude. It takes the person who's willing to think out of the box. And that we can't create that. That's the one thing we can't create. We need hungry people that really want to learn stuff, really want to do it right. Uh, and then all the rest is easy. We just tell them how that, how that happens, how you do that.
1: Well, that's. Uh, thank you guys. Uh, we'll have links to your guys' websites and some contact information uh, on the article if listeners do want to uh, learn more about Thousand Hills or the work Will Winter is doing out there. Uh, Will, have a great rest of your Moses conference. Matt, I assume that. Are you flying out to Moses? Is that where you're headed?
2: I am not. I'm going to a North American Savory Institute uh-huh. uh, gathering to talk for about 2019-2020 uh, planning, so it's going to be pretty exciting. But I'm going to Austin, Texas, so I get to go a little south.
1: Ah, well, good good for you. Uh, I'd love to have you back to talk about the work you're doing with Savory and the hub process and all that. So we'll, we'll schedule that one down the line. Uh, again, thank you guys so much for making the time. Uh, I appreciate it, and best of luck uh, this season. Have a good season out there.
0: Thanks, Ryan, thank We you, love Ryan. what you're doing. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah, it's fantastic. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay.
1: That was Will Winter and Matt Meyer with Thousand Hills Beef Cattle in Clearwater, Minnesota, and that wraps up another episode of Tractor Time brought to you by Acres USA and Albert Lee Seeds. Please spread the word and share the podcast with friends and family who want to grow and are looking to connect with a network of healthy food advocates. Find us at acresusa.com, at ecofarmingdaily.com. Find us with our monthly magazine, please subscribe, and our bookstore. Uh, You can find hundreds of titles in there to help you grow. Uh, Thanks again to you, our listeners, to Will and Matt, and to everyone out there who's traveling to the mini agriculture events this time of year. Be safe and have a great week.